my living room has turned into a music room. We have an organ, a piano, a drum set. Did I say a drum set? <laughs> One of our neighbors, um, we live in a rural area too. It's not like we have a lot of neighbors, but our neighbor came over um, and I was talking to her over the fence maybe a few months ago and she said, it sounds like you guys are having a party over there every night. And I said, I'm so sorry, I know. Um, I, I, I'm going to do what my husband did not do this morning. See, I'm like the cleanup crew. I come in after all of them, except for my sweet baby girl back there somewhere. But um, I, I'll say all the things. They put me last, so if they mess anything else up, I get to come in and fix it. But thank you very much to the Pentecostals of Dothan for letting us be here. Um, it's an honor. Thank you very much. You're, this is a lovely church, a lovely church. And thank you just for being good to us. And I, I, Lauren said it kind of already, but we have got to be a people who watch out for one another. I really believe that the call to this generation is to become a generation of intercessors. In the prayer room, of course. I'm not, I'm not saying not that. And I know we a lot of times think of intercession as on our knees in the prayer room, and it is that. But I will tell you, there is nothing more spiritual than walking right beside somebody as they make their way out of the darkness. Nothing more spiritual than that. The alternative is what we see in Proverbs chapter 7. And I'm going to just set the scene and read a little bit of scripture and then go into my testimony. But in, this, in Proverbs 7, King Solomon tells us the story of a young man who is walking directly into a trap set for him by the enemy. The young man has no idea that he is being lured into this situation by what scripture calls the strange woman. He or she's wearing the attire of a harlot. And as this man is making his way to this woman's house, King Solomon watches from afar off. He's just, he, he's not close enough to speak to him. In fact, it doesn't seem like this young man has anybody to speak into his situation and warn him. And here's the words of King Solomon. If you, I'm sorry, I didn't give this to you. It's chapter seven, verse six, and we'll read through verse 10. And this is the words of King Solomon. He says, For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. And that simple there means innocent but ignorant. I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. This is a young man, not a bad kid, just one who hasn't been taught. Nobody watching out for him. Passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Don't go that way, son. The mother in me wants to cry out, stop now before you get hurt. And I know I cannot reach that young man, but I believe that my job and our job as the church is to reach for the ones that we can. Reach for the ones that we can. And I, um, can I just say something here? Forgive me if this is, if, if you all don't do it this way, but when someone in your church chastises you in love, 
Receive it. In love is the important part. Receive it. Please know they're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to help you because they care. It just doesn't always feel that way in the moment, right? I've been there, so I know what happens. It's like someone says something and I, um, my flesh reacts before my heart can, and I just kind of buck up in pride, but don't do that. Hear people when they rebuke you in love. And I, I'll just say I, I thank God for men and women of God who took time to speak into the life of a broken and hurting teenager when I walked through the church doors. And I, I know there are young ones here today, so as I give my testimony, please know that three of those young ones are mine. And I am very mindful of young ears. I don't want to hurt anybody. I want to bless. Um, I will use veiled language, and I certainly won't be offended, though, if anybody feels like they've got to walk their little ones out. When you see me, you're looking at a pastor's wife, a college professor, and the mother of three beautiful children, two of them you saw up here today. I don't deserve these children. They are beautiful. But that is the product of 20 years of God's healing touch in my life. I'm a pastor's wife, but I am not standing here as a pastor's wife today. I am just somebody who has found the way out of darkness. And my prayer today is that what I share with you will encourage somebody who might have some things that have kept you bound. And I know I'm talking to mighty men and mighty women of God tonight. But I also know that we have an enemy that will stop at nothing at nothing to get us tangled up in some dark places. I pray that you will remember this testimony. One day when a broken man or a broken woman or God forbid a broken child stands in front of you, ashamed to look you in the eye, I pray that you will let God do the work he's trying to do in you so that you can stand in the gap for the broken. It is my prayer that we become a movement that stands guard Let me say that again. It is my prayer that we become a people that stands guard over the precious broken ones that come into our church doors. But first, we have to stand guard beside the broken one that might be sitting right next to us. Or maybe you're the broken one and you need somebody to wrap their arm around you and say, I'm going to be here with you while you heal. I am the pastor's wife in a church that is not far from garbage bins, me and my little sister used to dumpster dive in. My church is just a few miles from grocery stores I used to steal from. A little further down the road is the house I lived in when I was 15, and six men with bandanas covering their faces, armed with pistols and rifles, barreled into our living room, holding me and my little brothers and sisters hostage for what seemed like hours. I opened the door when they knocked, and we were trapped. I thought that we would die that night, that those men would pull the triggers execution style. I wasn't even old enough to drive, but the horror of the guns and the absolute desperation that comes from staring death in the face gave me nightmares for years. In fact, my husband likes to play hide-and-seek with the kids. He already knows what I'm going to say. They turn off every light in the house, and they all go and hide, and Nate lumbers down wherever trying to find them. And I 
I mean, for a long time, I would just lay in the bed and cover myself up. I didn't, I didn't like, like, the fear that came on me for that. You think I was 15 when it happened, and here I was, a 40-year-old woman, still struggling with the fallout from that. Seven of us children, I was the oldest one at home at 15, we were huddled on a love seat with a pistol pointed at us, and I believe we were dodging demons that wanted to kill us. They almost succeeded that night, and they had never given up trying. I know I don't look like it, but I have smuggled methamphetamines past the police two times in my life. Both times I was still a child. I look in the mirror and sometimes I just cannot believe what God has done. I see this godly woman looking back at me and I, it takes my breath away. God has been so good. But the enemy did not let me go without a fight. And this is important. God used people he placed beside me to help guide me and protect me. He put intercessors in the prayer room and he put intercessors right beside me. I walked through the church doors over 20 years ago, and I feel so old. Every time I say that, over 20 years ago, I was dragging generations of chains. I had chains of abuse, chains of addiction. I walked in broken and hurting and tired, and I walked in high. I can still remember one time my husband's mom, she was my pastor's wife, and we weren't married at the time. Um, I walked in the church doors one of the first times, maybe within the first month or so I was going, and in the vestibule we met, we were walking and we, we met, and she said, Tina, we're so glad you're here. And then she looked me in the eye and just held my gaze, and I got so nervous and I blurted out, I said, sometimes I come to church high. And then I was like, shut up, Tina, what are you doing? I just got, church ladies look you in the eye. You know, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like all you can do to put your eyes down. Um, and I did, sometimes I came, I was probably high that night. But I, I was 17, at, or actually I was 18 at that time. But the first time I got drunk and high, I was nine years old. And over the course of that year, Five different grown men violated me. My fourth grade year is the first time I can clearly remember things happening to me. But I have snippets of memory that tell me it probably happened earlier too. Maybe as young as five or six. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Either way, by nine years old, I had learned to keep secrets. Early experiences in my life led me down some dark roads. When I was nine years old and that first grown man violated me, he took me to a field. And I was too afraid and too naive to fight back. I had been home alone and my mom's boyfriend came by and I opened the door. He promised McDonald's and a Barbie if I went with him. We ended up in a dark field where he hurt me in ways I still struggle to speak of. And I didn't even fight back because I wanted the doll and because we were in the middle of nowhere in the dark. That's just one example, and I tell that example because I, I have found the language to share it. It's like there's a fine line between graphic and pornographic, and I don't want to cross that line. I will just say that man took something that never could be replaced, and I never did get the Barbie. <laughs> By the time I was 14 years old, I walked willingly through doors that others had carried me through. By age 16, I had my first girlfriend. 
She was in my high school public speaking class, and then two months later, we walked the streets together at San Francisco's Gay Pride Parade. That one relationship with that one woman opened the door to lots of other relationships with lots of other women. I was 16, and I was addicted to pornography, to alcohol, to marijuana. I was 16, and I was so broken and so ashamed. When I was nine, someone else opened those doors for me. I talked with that, with the youth about that a little bit today. When I was nine, I opened those, or someone else opened the doors for me, but along the way, I started to open doors for myself. Some of the doors I walked through, I will never speak out loud. I was just like the young man Solomon saw in Proverbs chapter 7. I was walking places I had no business going, and I had no one on the sidelines guiding me. Can I say this? And again, please don't just give me the look. I know it. I'm married. Okay, give me the look, Brother Harrelson. I'll know what to do. But if you don't have anyone in your life who has veto power, that's a dangerous place to be. Sometimes it's like, I mean, I know, sometimes we're too wounded to open ourselves up for somebody to speak into our lives. I understand that. And sometimes it's pride that stops us from submitting to someone else. I understand that too. Whatever it is, please hear me. If you leave here and remember nothing else I have said, whatever is stopping you, whatever is stopping you from giving godly people the opportunity to speak into your lives, get to an altar and lay it down. What's that scripture about night comes when no man can work? Night is coming. We don't have time to play games. The things in our hearts that are stopping us from doing the work that God has called us to, we've got to get rid of it. This next part, it sounds so easy, and in some ways it was. When I was 18, I walked into a Pentecostal church for the first time. I got saved. I took out my tongue ring, and I tried to put my old life behind me. For the first time in my life, I felt hope. That doesn't mean it was an easy road. But the next year, I married the pastor's son, a handsome man over there. And um, next year, I married him. I started teaching Sunday school. I sat on the front pew. I was so tired and so broken and so ashamed that I had closed every door I could, and I tried to put it all behind me. I wanted to live a right life. For years when I was young, I had, I had struggled with believing there was a God because I, like I couldn't reconcile the things that were happening in my own life with the fact of a God. I would, like if there was a God, where was he? He didn't live in my house. He couldn't live in my house. It wasn't until I walked into a truth teaching church and I felt the power of God that I could not deny that I started to open my mind and say, Lord, I don't understand. And it took me years. And when I say years, I mean like I think I'm still understanding new things about it. It took me a long time to understand that God didn't let those happen to, those things happen to me when I was a kid to punish me. Those things happened because somebody left some doors open in my life when I was young. And when doors are open, things get in. I have three kids. Doors get left open all the time. Can I get an amen from my children and from every mother in this house? Doors get left open all the time. 
And we live on a farm. Uh, we had, up until last year when she passed away, we had a dairy cow named Molly. Was she a Jersey? We love that cow, did we not? I think Nate's going to cry more about the cow. Than, but we had this dairy cow named Molly. And one day I was in the living room. And I was talking with Sister Lori, a good friend of mine. And we were chatting. And all of a sudden I heard this weird sound in my dining room. And I thought, what in the world is that? And I, do you hear that, Lori? Yeah, I hear it. So we stood up and walked into the dining room. And there was Molly our dairy cow, standing inside of my, am I making this up? Inside of my dining room. She had nosed the door open, was a sliding glass door, and come inside and was standing there. And I thank God, and I, I really, Lord, thank you that we got her out of there before she sat down. Because it is not easy to get a cow back up if they don't want to get up. So we shooed her out the door and um, shut it and locked it, and that was it. And then another day we had a chicken come in. And Benson, the one who was playing the piano over there, this chicken had found a soft spot in a pile of clothes on Benson's shelf. How long, was that three years ago, maybe four years ago? And we didn't even know she was there until she got up from the shelf and strutted across our living room, down into the dining room, and back out the sliding glass door, same door that had been left open. And it was kind of cute, right? And so the next day, she clucked at the door, and we opened it and let her back in to lay that egg. And it was cute for probably maybe, I don't know, less than a week. And I was like, this is disgusting. This is not cute. It's gross. And so I said, that's it. We're not going to let her in anymore. And so we shut the door. Next day, she came clucking, and we all felt bad for her. I was like, oh, we want to let that sweet little chicken in. No. Uh-uh. She will eventually go, she's going to lay that egg somewhere, trust me. She will lay that egg, it'll be fine. And it took three or four days probably, and she found another place to start laying, and she quit asking. And I, I want to say this, is that just because things get in, it does not mean we have to let them stay in. They don't get to stay. We have to... We don't have to die because of the sins of others. There's got to get something in us to rise up and say, no, I'm going to shut the door whether I open it or not. Because if I don't, my biggest fear is that doors left open in my life, things are going to come in and get my children. Lord, not on my watch. Please don't let that happen. We got to have people by our side and in the prayer room to help us shield from the enemy's attacks. And the enemy's attacks don't always come from where we expect them. I I think God has asked me to tell this story everywhere I go, and I think it's because there's something in it I still need to heal from. There was a time when we were young married, and I was at a, we were at a minister's fellowship, a bunch of ministers and their wives there, and we were sitting at the table, and it was a bunch of, forgive me for this, it was a bunch of older people, and we were not older people then. So I wasn't really listening to what they were saying. You know, I was probably trying to figure out how I could get up without hurting anybody. No, they wouldn't even have noticed. But, you know, when you're young, you think everyone notices everything you do. And um, I really wasn't paying attention. And then I heard one of the men say something, and it kind of caught my ear. And I, I started, like, I listened. And he said it again. But he said, um, God can't save homosexuals. This is a preacher. And he's talking to another group of preachers at our table. And then he said it a little stronger. He said, God can't save. You want to say it? 
those people. And I looked at my husband and I said, don't say anything, baby. And he said, if he says it again, I'm going to have to. And I sat there and I prayed, Lord, please don't let that man say it again. Please, I did. I prayed, God, please don't let him say it again. But he did. This time he was stronger. He said, you show me one of those people who God has saved and I will eat my words. And my husband stood up. He's six foot seven and he wasn't aggressive, maybe a little bit, but not a lot. He stood up and he said, brother, so-and-so, have you met my wife? And then all eyes turned to me and I get red anyways when I'm nervous. And it was worse back then. And the man said, well, of course I've met your wife. My husband said, if you're saying God can't save those people, then you're saying God didn't save my wife. And that man, as he realized what had just happened, started to get a little bit angry. His face got red, probably redder than mine, and he went and he grabbed his wife, and they walked out the door. Let me tell you right now that I do not blame that minister. I did for a long time. But the Lord has helped me to understand that he really didn't know God could do it. He didn't know that I had walked into the church doors with a woman beside me and that she wasn't the only woman I had been with. I was just a few months over 18 when I walked into my first apostolic service, but I was already broken. And my husband knew it, my family knew it. But outside of that, many, many people didn't know my past. I don't blame the minister, but that doesn't mean I wasn't hurt by it. I was so ashamed that day. I just wanted to crawl under the table and hide until everyone was gone. And I always say I was younger and thinner back then. I probably could have. And if you had a book for me, I would have stayed under there until everyone was gone and just got out to help clean up. But that man got to leave. And my husband gave me a look that said, hold your head high. You're with me. Do you feel that gentle tug of the Holy Ghost? Is there an intercessor in the house today that says, I will stand beside the broken when they come through our doors. I will not devour them. I will reach for them. God help us. It was only a few years ago I was sharing this story that it occurred to me that out of that whole room of ministers, no one besides my husband stood up for me. And not one person that was there that day, even to this day, has ever mentioned it again. A whole room full of preachers of the gospel and no one else stood up. Let me say this, is that the last whole person, if there ever was such a creature, has walked through our church doors. I have heard for years that the church of today is gonna, or of tomorrow is gonna have to face things that we've never even imagined. The church of tomorrow is going to have to fight battles that we can't even guess about. But I really believe that right now is the moment. The church of tomorrow is happening today. We are the generation. You heard Brother Patterson talk about it this morning. I walked in and just caught the end of it. We are the generation. We are chosen. We have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. We've got to stand beside the broken or the enemy is going to devour them. And listen, I'm not just talking about California broken people. I went to your Walmart yesterday. I know that Alabama has broken people, okay? 
just go to Walmart and you see everything you need to see. Am I making that up? It doesn't matter where you go. You see all kinds of people there from the most broken in society all the way to the doctor shopping in there. You get a good, you get a good sense of a community. So I went there yesterday and I know, I know Alabama needs help too. One of the greatest needs in our movement is for intercessors. And when I, when I walked in the church doors for the first time at 18, I had no idea how, how long my road out of darkness would be. I want to share one story, and then I'm just going to start wrapping up. And this, this story starts almost 100 years ago. John W. Rooks was a preacher who trusted God and lived by faith. That is how the family legend begins. Every time one of my mother-in-law's family members, they have a big get-together, they tell this story. And the tale continues that one day Brother Rooks heard from the Lord. God told him to load up his family in their station wagon and start driving. And that was no small feat because they had a lot of kids. And that, I think that woman probably had more faith than he did, right? He says, baby, load up the kids. And you already know who did it. Am I, you already know who did the work. He's in there honking the horn. My husband isn't like that, but all the other husbands in the house honking the horn while she's gathering everything else up. And she did. They gathered up all the kids and started driving. And God instructed this man, Brother Rooks, to get in the car and drive until he saw a man with an axe on his shoulder. So he did. Him and his wife and all of those children drove down gravel roads in Arkansas. They drove looking for their reason for that trip. He had no idea where he was going. He just kept driving. I'm not sure how long they drove, but I know they drove until they reached a place called Winslow, Arkansas. They pulled over, and after they stopped, they looked, and there he was. Believe this. There was a man coming out of the field with an axe on his shoulder. Brother Rooks got out of the car, and he approached the man, and he said, I'm John Rooks. And God has sent me here to preach a revival. Talk about a God-ordained moment. That man told Brother Rooks that they had been praying for someone to come and preach to them. They were ready for a revival. And they had a brush arbor meeting, and there were many people saved in that brush arbor meeting. And that was the story I had heard for years. The first few times I heard it, I, I like distinctly remember the awe I felt. Wow. But over time... That feeling of wonder passed, and I started to get a little bit skeptical. I didn't think anybody was lying. But you know how stories just get embellished over time? Alabama people don't do that. <laughs> Listen. And I really thought, okay, how much did this, how much of this is really true? Well, a few years ago, my husband and I took his mom's first cousin, Brenda, and her husband to the United Pentecostal Church General Conference. And they were an older couple. It wasn't as easy for them to drive those long hours like it had been. And this was a special year because Brenda's brother, Rendell Rutledge, had passed away. And they were honoring him during the, um, what do they call that, memorial service, the evening. And so during lunch on one of our stops there, the story of the man with the axe came up. And it wasn't surprising. Probably I would have been a little disappointed in Brenda if she didn't take this perfect opportunity to tell this family story. And she did. And I was like, all right, good. And she said, have you ever heard the story of the man with the axe? And Nate and I both nodded and said, yes, of course we've heard it. Of course we have. And she got a little twinkle in her eye. And she said, well, have you ever heard the rest of the story? 
and I think both of us probably expected just a couple of extra details. I don't think we expected it to be anything super exciting. But she picked up the story and she said it was at the 2001 General Conference when her husband had gone one morning to the business meeting. And if you have ever been to a business meeting of any kind, you know they're not super exciting. This particular business meeting at General Conference is a bunch of preachers wearing uncomfortable suits who have not eaten breakfast yet. They're hungry, they just want it to be over, and somebody else is going to keep talking and talking. So usually the preachers come back from the business meetings a little bit grumpy, for sure a little bit hungry. Well, this day, Brenda had stayed in the hotel room, and when her husband Gary came back in the doors after the business meeting, his face was lit up and he was so excited. And it seems strange to me that we had gone from 100 years ago, John Rooks, she's telling that story. Now all of a sudden she's at 2001 General Conference. I was trying to make sense of what she was telling us. And then this moment I understood. She said, Gary walked in the doors and he said, Brenda, you're never going to believe this. He said, I was sitting next to a man from Arkansas at the business meeting. So I started to tell him the story about the man with the axe. And Brenda said, okay, okay. And so the man had been so kind to Gary. He was an elder. And the man let Gary tell his whole story about the man with the axe. And at the end of it, the man sitting next to Gary said, can I tell you the rest of that story? And Gary said, well, sure, you can tell me. Like, how do you know this story? And he said, the man with the axe on his shoulder was my uncle. My name is Brother Hampton, and I am a pastor in Winslow, Arkansas. And that man was my uncle. And if you're... If your grandfather had not come and preached that revival, I would never have made it. I would never have been saved. And then it gets even crazier. I was telling, because now I'm part of the family, so I tell the story too. So I was telling the story to Regina Lopez. Her husband is the president of Christian Life College in Stockton. And I said, well, there's this story in Nate's family of the man with the ax. And I told her, Brother Winslow. And she said, Brother Winslow was my pastor. No, Brother Hampton was my pastor. Sorry, you caught me. Brother Hampton was my pastor. I grew up in Winslow, Arkansas. It, it turns out from that Brush Arbor meeting, a whole church was born. And I do believe that there's not one of us here today that if the Lord walked by and said, I'm looking for volunteers to be the spark for a revival, I can't imagine any of us wouldn't raise our hand and say, pick me, pick me. I believe, right? We want the miraculous. We want to see revival. Hear me, please. God wants to use us, but he's got to do two things first. First is he's got to heal us of our brokenness. And I know not everybody's brokenness is like mine, but he's got to heal us of our brokenness. And then he's got to be sure he can trust us with hurting people. I'm closing. And if you've heard my testimony before, please forgive me. I, I was telling Sister Harrelson last night, I always end my testimony the same way because it's the cry of my heart. My earliest memories involved darkness. I needed, de I needed deliverance before I was old enough to write my own name. The demons in my life were generational. My grandmother battled them. She was abused by her own stepfather. And that same man hurt my mom before she could defend herself. She's told stories of Grandpa Bud carrying her into the basement since I was little. Those kind of demons do not go away on their own. My grandmother battled them. 
My mother battled them, and I battled them. But with God's help, my children will not have to battle the same darkness that I battled. Jesus, I pray. I pray that God will protect my children from the things that have chased my family for generations. I walked into the church stores over 20 years ago, hopeless and so tired. And now, 20 years later, can I say that I never hear the chains rattle? Can I say the darkness never tries to sneak? Of course not. Of course not. But I know what to do. I get close to people in my life who have permission to speak into my life. And I make myself accountable. I have submitted myself to godly men and women. And I have learned to love the broken ones God has placed by my side. Thank you all for being a church that is placed in a community. I know if there's not, there's broken ones here. Come on, right? You can't get five people together nowadays and not have broken ones. There's broken ones here. But my prayer for this church is that when broken ones come through the doors, that this is a church that will stand beside them. You don't know that the next preacher that's going to spark a revival might be walking in those doors tomorrow. We just don't know. We just don't know. I don't really know how to end it. I'm not a preacher. I don't know what to do here, but um, somebody can help me out. That would be really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you all for being so good to me. Thanks, Lord. can't just walk out of here and so uh, I'll tell you what I want to do we've had great singing worship so now what I want us to do is I want to just kind of just without music I want you to maybe gather up around your family, your who you're connected with. And I'd like for you to just step out from where you're at. And I want you to step up here in these altars. And we're going to pray for ourselves. And I want you to pray for the person next to you. And... Uh, the church in Rio Linda is unbelievable. And Sister Royer has several sisters and a brother. We all squeeze in tight here. Let's y'all are kind of and the Lord has done some tremendous things in, in in their lives. All of them have stories and their spiritual darkness there. But I'm just going to tell you what the power and redeeming work of the Lord has helped them. And uh, I want you to reach over and put your hand on the person next to you. And we're just going to pray.
We're going to pray for healing. Pray for salvation. Pray for peace of mind. And the Lord can do some very powerful things here tonight if we'll let him. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord. Jesus, we...